Hey guys, this is Brie. You are listening to Brief, the podcast that summarizes all the books. This is 1984 by George Orwell. There's going to be two episodes for this book. This is episode one. It covers all of part one and then through chapter five of part two. Now I'm going to ask you guys to do me a favor before you listen, go or while you're listening, I guess, give me a review however many stars you want, and write a review. It really helps me get higher on the list of podcasts. So that would be awesome if you could do that for me. Okay, I'm going to start with context and overview. 1984 was written by George Orwell. His real name is Eric Blair. He was born in 1903 and died in 1950. He was born in India. He attended private schools in England for most of his life. And he began his writing career working for a communist-funded journal in France, but he eventually gravitated towards socialism. He became a political essayist, novelist, and critic whose work centered on social injustices and oppression. He lived in France for two years before he returned to England, and he continued his interest in politics and joined the British Independent Labour Party. The British Independent Labour Party was a leftist political party which focused on advocating rights for the working class in response to liberal and conservative reluctance to do so. So with his British Independent Labour Party members, George Orwell went to fight against fascism in the Spanish Civil War. During the war, he was shot by a sniper in the neck, but somehow survived. But after that, he was in poor health for the rest of his life until he died. During the Civil War, he became disenchanted with communism and eventually had to flee Spain. When he returned to England, the British government viewed him as an extremist and he struggled to publish anything for a few years. During World War II, Orwell started working as a journalist for BBC And it was during this time that he published Animal Farm, which is his second most popular book, 1984 being the most popular. So he published Animal Farm, which received worldwide acclaim, and those finances from Animal Farm allowed him to work full-time on his next novel, which is 1984, which is also his last novel before he died. So 1984 was sent to publishing when... Orwell was suffering from severe tuberculosis. It was published in 1949, just a year before he died. 40 years after the initial publishing, it was the most translated English-based novel in the world. And this idea of the world in 1984 being split into massive superstates comes from George Orwell's response to the Tehran Conference. The Tehran Conference was the first meeting between Winston Churchill, Joseph Stalin, and Franklin D. Roosevelt. They were the three ally powers, and they showed a type of superiority and influence between the three nations, and that seriously concerned George Orwell. So that is what his superstates are based on in the book. They are Oceania, Eurasia, and East Asia. Orwell expected that World War II would bring a disastrous revolution in Britain, and that is where his setting of Oceania is. As a fierce socialist, Orwell saw leftists in power willing to abuse and disengage their ideologies for the sake of power, and that created a totalitarian government. Many of the torture and surveillance tactics used by the fictional government in 1984 reflects the techniques used by Stalin-led forces in the 30s and 40s. The last thing I'm going to tell you is I'm going to talk about the map. So in 1984, like I said, there's three super states. The first is Oceania. Oceania is where 1984 is set. And that's where Winston lives. It includes North America, Central America, South America, the lower half of Africa, Australia, some of Indonesia, it looks like, and the UK. Eurasia is all the rest of Europe, Russia, and all of the (laughs) vast nothingness up in Russia. And then East Asia is 
India, China, Japan, all of the Asian countries. The rest of the world is disputed. So the northern half of Africa, the lower half of Europe, and some islands. Anyway, so that's kind of a brief overview of what the map looks like. You can Google it. If you just Google 1984 map, it shows you. Okay, I'm going to briefly go over major characters. I'm just going to talk about three. So the main character is Winston Smith. It is an omniscient narrator, so a third-person narrative, but it's in the eyes of Winston. So Winston is the protagonist. He is about 39 years old, but he doesn't quite know how old he is because you can never be sure in this world. He walks with a limp. He has an injured ankle that is chronic. He is blonde. He's naturally positive, but he's super worn out from his life. His life has been very strenuous. He's really smart and he thinks very deeply. He is secretly against the totalitarian government, which is called the party. And he is always searching for other people like him but it's impossible to find because everyone is so careful about the way their faces look or what they talk about, but he's very smart. Okay, the second character is O'Brien. He is very mysterious. He's a member of the inner party, which is like the prestigious people, the higher-ups. He's very large. He's very intimidating, but he is kind and gentlemanly. Winston believes that he may be a member of the Brotherhood. The Brotherhood is an organization that is against the party, against the government, that no one really knows if it exists or not. But Winston thinks that O'Brien might be a member of the Brotherhood because of a look he gave him one time. He has no other proof. And anyway, O'Brien is very stern. He's very powerful. So the last character I'm going to talk about is Julia. Julia is 26 years old. She is a rebel against the party, but mostly because she just likes to rebel and break the rules. She's not trying to like overthrow the government or anything like Winston wants to. She just really likes breaking the rules. She has dark hair and freckles and brown eyes. She's pretty. She's super smart, very deceptive. She's really good at hiding herself, at hiding her thoughts. She doesn't care, like I said, about rebelling against the party or what the party stands for. She just wants to break the rules. Okay, briefly, the themes are truth versus reality, nationalism, and human nature. I'll get into those at the end, but those are the themes to look for throughout the novel. Okay, chapter summaries. This is part one, chapter one. Winston returns home from work. He is taking a break for lunch and he goes back to his apartment. His apartment is in a dilapidated building full of propaganda posters. Most of the posters show the faces of their leader who they call Big Brother and he is based on Joseph Stalin. The posters say things like Big Brother is watching you. I'm sure you've heard that phrase that comes from this book. Winston wonders if London has always been like this. He lives in London, but he can't remember anything from his childhood. Or I guess he can't remember much from his childhood. He is in pain. Like I said, he has a chronic ankle injury. It's a varicose ulcer that can't be mended and it always is bugging him. He looks out the window and he sees the Ministry of Truth. That's where he works. It's a big building and carved into the building are the words, War is peace, freedom is slavery, ignorance is strength. And that is the party's slogan. He turns around and sees the telescreen. So the telescreen is basically like a TV, but it has a camera and it watches you constantly. It sounds a lot like um, our cell phones now, but basically you're always being watched and you're always being heard. It says on page three, you had to live in the assumption that every sound you made was overheard and except in darkness, every moment scrutinized. So he turns around. It says he had set his features into the expression of quiet optimism, which it was advisable to wear when facing the telescreen. Like I said, he works at the Ministry of Truth. There are four ministries. The first is Ministry of Truth, which handles news, entertainment, education, and the arts. The second is the Ministry of Peace, 
which handles war, ironically. The third is the ministry of love, which maintains law and order. And the fourth is the ministry of plenty, which handles economic affairs. Back to Winston's apartment. There is one place in his apartment where the telescreen cannot see him. This is unique. He just happened to get a different type of apartment where there is a little alcove in the wall and the telescreen can't see it. So he has a desk there and he sits at the desk and he pulls out a blank book. It's a journal or a diary. There's nothing written in it, but in this world that he lives in, owning a book like this is punishable by death, although technically there are no laws he does know that being in possession of a book like this is punishable by death. So he pulls it out and he writes the date, April 6th, 1984. Although this is a complete guess because he has no direct recollection of the past. Every The past is constantly changed, which we'll talk about later, but there's no way for him to know actually what the date is. So that's an approximate guess. He is nervous that he will be discovered by the telescreen or by the thought police, which we'll get into later, and he hesitates before writing anything else. So he begins recording what he did the previous night because he's not sure where to start or what to write. And so he talks about how he was at the community center and he watched a war movie that had a really violent battle. Anyway, he takes a break from writing. He feels overwhelmed and he starts thinking about why he wanted to come home from lunch and write anyway. And so he recalls this from earlier that day at work. While he was in his daily meeting, which is called the two minutes hate, two people caught his eye. So two minutes hate happens every day at work. You have to go into a room where the screening is held. It's a two minute video. Basically the party propaganda showing this man whose name is Emmanuel Goldstein. He is the original dissenter of the party. He is supposedly evil and he gives a speech. It's very over-exaggerated. Winston says a child should have been able to see through it. Emmanuel Goldstein recites hateful messages against the party. During this meeting, everyone screams at the television, protests Emmanuel Goldstein as he's denouncing the party, Emmanuel Goldstein calls for freedom of speech, freedom of press, freedom of assembly, freedom of thought. And in the party, this is, you know, treason. <laughs> so at this two minutes hate, he sees two people. One is a young woman who seems to be incredibly patriotic. He assumes that she's a member of the thought police. The thought police are people who chase you down they chase people down who may disagree with the party, the political structure, and they turn them into the police. He sees this girl and he hates her because she's young and she's pretty and she wears a red sash around her waist that signifies that she is part of the Junior Anti-Sex League. The second person he sees is a member of the inner party. He is higher up in the administration. His name is O'Brien. Winston secretly thinks that he and O'Brien share the same resentment and hatred for the party, and he thinks this only because of a look that O'Brien gave Winston during the two minutes hate. So, like I said, the two minutes hate is just a brief video that everyone watches. They all yell at the screen while they watch Emmanuel Goldstein talk about freedom, and Winston had felt that O'Brien was a part of the Brotherhood, which is a mythical group of rebels against the party who secretly distribute a special book about the party and how everything they're doing is wrong. But nobody knows if the Brotherhood actually exists or not. But every single day, spies or supposed spies for the Brotherhood are arrested every day. So on page 14, it says, the horrible thing about two minutes hate was not that one was obliged to act apart, but that it was impossible to avoid joining in. Winston's loathing for Big Brother during the two minutes hate turns into admiration. He's unconsciously drawn to Big Brother and he finds himself, you know, yelling at Emmanuel Goldstein. When the video reaches its climax, Big Brother's face replaces Goldstein and he speaks soothing words to the people 
and they love him and they're faced with the three slogans of the party, which I said are war is peace, freedom is slavery, ignorance is strength. Two minutes hate is over. Everyone goes back to work. But Winston had noticed O'Brien looking saddened by the other's response to the hate. Despite only seeing a very small micro expression on O'Brien's face, Winston feels he might also hate the current situation and might also be against the party. So back to him being in his apartment with his notebook. He is encouraged by this memory and perhaps the fact that he's not alone in his hatred for Big Brother. And over and over again in his journal, he writes down with Big Brother in big all caps letters. So this is clearly an open defiance against Big Brother, and it frightens him. He has mixed emotions, and he thinks about being caught and arrested, and how people who defied the party were vaporized and forgotten. And while he's thinking about this, he suddenly hears a knock on his door. He thinks it's for sure the thought police, and that they've already discovered him. All right, chapter two. So Winston hears a knock at the door. He goes to answer it, and it's his neighbor. She's asking for him to come help fix her sink. Winston goes over to help and describes this woman's children. They are very aggressive political zealots. So in this world of 1984, children are trained in school to be little thought police, and they turn their parents in for anything they say or do against the party. So as a result of this, parents are in constant fear of their children. So as Winston is working on the sink, he has a memory of a dream he had years ago. And in the dream, he is walking in pitch dark and he hears someone say to him, we shall meet in the place where there is no darkness. And when he has the memory of that dream, he realizes that the voice in his dream was O'Brien's voice, which he's only heard a couple times before. So as he's fixing the sink, the telescreen in this woman's house, it says that the chocolate ration for each individual will be reduced, saying that it's connected to war efforts, which is not true. And Winston thinks about INGSOC, I-N-G-S-O-C, which is a shorthand for English socialism. He also thinks about thought crime and double think and newspeak, and we'll learn about all of those later. But Winston does think mostly about how he calls it the mutability of the past on page 26. And basically this party, they change everything in the past every day. It's impossible to know what's real. He thinks to himself on page 27, nothing was your own except the few cubic centimeters inside your skull. So realizing that thinking about revolting against the party ensures his imminent death, he finds a will to exist for as long as he can. Chapter three, Winston spends the night dreaming of his mother's death. And he also has dreams about the suspicious dark haired woman from work that he saw during the two minutes hate the day before. On page 30, it says his mother's death nearly 30 years ago had been tragic and sorrowful in a way that was no longer possible. Tragedy he perceived belonged to the ancient time to a time when there was still privacy, love, and friendship, and when members of a family stood by one another without needing to know the reason. He wakes up that morning to the telescreen. Every morning, they do their morning exercises with the telescreen. As he's doing his exercises, he attempts to recall a time when Oceana was not at war, and he can't. But he thinks about how the party has the ability to change your memories and erase the past. So it's impossible to know what's true and what's not. He thinks about how Oceana is currently at war with Eurasia. And this had to mean, according to the party, that Oceana had always been at war with Eurasia. But Winston remembers a time just four years prior when Oceana was allies with Eurasia and they were at war with East Asia. But this knowledge existed only in his mind, and all proof of this alliance with Eurasia was incinerated. So if you were to go back and look at the evidence, Oceana would have in fact always been at war with Eurasia. On page 36, it says, 
Whatever was true now was true from everlasting to everlasting. All that was needed was an unending series of victories over your own memory. Reality control, they called it. In Newspeak, the word for it is doublethink. So, on page 36, it says, Doublethink is to know and to not know, to be conscious of complete truthfulness while telling carefully constructed lies, to hold simultaneously two opinions which canceled out, knowing them to be contradictory and believing in both of them. <laughs> so basically, it's like, yeah, yesterday we told you that the chocolate rations were going to be reduced 20 grams a week, but today we're telling you that they're going to be increased 20 grams per week, and what we're telling you now is the truth, and what we told you yesterday is an untruth. Basically, it's just whatever we tell you right now is the truth, and you can forget whatever we told you before. Okay, on page 37, Winston is thinking about a time in his life, it says, where he held unmistakable documentary proof of the falsification of a historical fact. But before he can recall this instance, the monitor <laughs> yells at him that he needs to perform his exercises better. They actually call him out by name. Chapter 4. Winston is at work, and he describes his work, which concerns the intricate process of destroying, quote-unquote, inaccurate records with records that are currently accurate. So instead of writing by hand at work, they use what they call a speak-write, which is just a microphone that they transcribe everything into. And all day he changes facts and articles, things in history, to fit the current reality. Anything that opposed reality currently is placed in the memory hole, which is just a little, like, chute that they put things in, and then it's incinerated and lost forever. So, for example, today Winston is changing a speech given by Big Brother because... Big Brother had wrongly predicted something and the speech must be changed so that Big Brother had actually predicted the thing that happened. So it's, I can't remember the exact thing that happened, but basically he had predicted that some military force would be in Africa, but really it was in South India. And so Winston is responsible for changing it to say South India instead so that Big Brother was right because heaven forbid he predicts something wrong. It says on 41, day by day and almost minute by minute, the past was brought up to date. Basically, what he does is substitute one piece of nonsense for another. And of course, this is all done without any admission that any alteration had been made. So for example, it says the Ministry of Plenty regularly falsified statistics about the amount of food, rations, clothing, etc. that is being distributed to the population of Oceania. But the news will announce that an astronomical amount of boots were sent to the people, but Winston points out that half the population of Oceania went barefoot. Winston thinks about the people he works with and how he doesn't know most of their names, but he loves his job. It's his greatest pleasure in life. He loves the intricate work that he sometimes gets to do. His current task is to change another one of Big Brother's speeches that had mentioned a person who does not exist anymore and he's supposed to rewrite it so the person who big brother mentioned in this speech must have displeased the party in some way on page 46 it says people who had incurred the displeasure of the party simply disappeared and were never heard from again they use the term vaporized they don't only just kill them and get rid of them they go through the past and erase every single memory of them every single proof that they had ever existed. So they're just vaporized. And they do this, Winston says, by the thousands. They call it the purge. It's called the process of being unpersoned. The party actually kills thousands of people at a time with no definitive purpose. They just call them traitors to the party. So in order to delete this person from Big Brother's speech, Winston has to create a completely fake person, give him a background and everything, he names him Comrade Ogilvy, and on 49 it says, It struck him as curious that you could create dead men but not living ones. Comrade Ogilvy, who had never existed in the present, now existed in the past, 
and when once the act of forgery was forgotten, he would exist just as authentically and upon the same evidence as Charlemagne or Julius Caesar. Chapter 5. Winston goes to lunch during work in the cafeteria, and he sits with his friend named Syme during lunchtime. The food is disgusting, and basically they just drink what they call victory gin, and it sounds a lot like they're just pouring, like, straight rubbing alcohol down their throats. Anyway, they're all just hungry, and so they drink the gin to make them feel less hungry. Syme is a specialist in the language new speak, and he's one of the experts working on the 11th edition of the new speak dictionary. New speak is the official language of Oceania, and it's what the party hopes to transition to out of English into into new speak. So Syme describes the process of new speak the Newspeak aim is to eliminate creativity and ambivalence. He talks about the deconstruction of words, especially adjectives, because he thinks, well, the party thinks that they are useless. Syme is really smart. He says, what justification is there for a word which is simply the opposite of another word? A word contains its opposite in itself. So he talks about the word good and how instead of having the word bad, we can just say ungood or plus good if it's really good, but if it's really, really bad, we can say double ungood or double plus good. He says, in the end, the whole notion of goodness and badness will be covered by six words, and in reality, only one word, and that's the goal of Newspeak. He says on page 53, don't you see the whole aim of Newspeak is to narrow the range of thought. In the end, we shall make thought crime literally impossible because there will be no words in which to express it. So, as Winston is sitting there listening to his friend Syme, he thinks to himself that Syme will someday be vaporized because he's too intelligent and he sees too clearly and speaks too plainly. He lacks discretion, he's read too many books, and he hangs out at a place called the Chestnut Tree Cafe, which is not illegal, but it is very frowned upon. It makes you very suspicious if you hang out there because that's where the original dissenters of the party supposedly used to hang out. But Winston looks at all of these facts and thinks and knows, in fact, that someday Syme will be vaporized. So while they're sitting there, Winston's neighbor Parsons comes to sit next to him. And this is the husband of the woman who came to ask Winston to help fix her sink. He's a very big man. He's <laughs> constantly sweating and he's pretty dumb. Winston doesn't really like him. But Parsons comes up and starts talking to him about how his sons are spies for the party and he thinks it's just the most amazing thing. While he's talking, a public announcement is made which mentions several notes that Winston wrote earlier that day, several things that he changed that day. One of the announcements is that the chocolate ration is being increased by 20 grams but Winston remembers that just 24 hours earlier, the chocolate ration had been reduced by 20 grams. And he wonders if anyone else in that room is thinking what he's thinking or if they're all just swallowing the information blindly. And it says on page 60, was he alone in the possession of a memory? He thinks about Parsons and how he's the ideal party member because he's too dumb to think anything against the party. And he realizes that Parsons is the kind of guy who will never be vaporized. Towards the end of lunch, Winston notices the dark-haired woman looking at him. The moment she looks at him, he had been deeply thinking about the party and about memory, and so he becomes paranoid that she might know his thought crimes because his face wasn't perfectly set to be pleasant, and so he's worried again that she's the thought police. On 64, it says, It was possible that his features had not been perfectly under control. It was terribly dangerous to let your thoughts wander when you were in any public place or within range of a telescreen. The smallest thing could give you away. To wear an improper expression on your face was itself a punishable offense. There was even a word for it in Newspeak. Face crime. Okay, chapter 6. So Winston is back in his room writing in his diary and he writes about his first and only experience with a prostitute she was obviously a prole like I said they don't have 
really any rules. So he was sad and lonely and he went to go seek companionship from a prostitute. He is disgusted by himself for going to her, but he feels like if he writes it down, it will absolve him of his guilt and he won't have to like think about it anymore. So he talks about how the party seeks to eliminate eroticism and any other uncontrollable emotions, which is why they discourage sex even between spouses unless it's for reproducing, which is also why they match two people together who have seemingly no sexual attraction to each other. This is when we find out that Winston is technically married, but his wife disappeared years ago. He thinks about and regrets that sexuality and real love were unachievable during his marriage with Catherine, which was very short. It was less than a year. Like I said, the party frowns upon sex and wants to take the excitement and joy out of it, even between married people. On page 67, it says, the aim of the party was not merely to prevent men and women from forming loyalties, which it might not be able to control. Its real undeclared purpose was to remove all pleasure from the sexual act. Not love so much as eroticism was the enemy, inside marriage as well as outside it. All marriages between party members had to be approved by a committee appointed for the purpose, and, though the principle was never clearly stated, permission was always refused if the couple concerned gave the impression of being physically attracted to one another. The only recognized purpose of marriage was to beget children for the service of the party. Sexual intercourse was to be looked on as a slightly disgusting minor operation like having an enema. So, this is how the party has, this is what they've turned sex into. Only for reproducing, kind of gross, no one wants to do it. So, Winston thinks about this and it makes him super angry and he's shameful uh, especially about the prostitute. He thinks about his wife, Catherine. So she left nearly 11 years ago. They had only been together for just over a year. On page 68, it says, very early in their married life, he had decided that she had, without exception, the most stupid, vulgar, empty mind that he had ever encountered. So the party did a very good job matching them together because he didn't like her at all. He says that she didn't think about anything important. She just swallowed whatever the party told her, which made him super mad. She would wince when Winston tried to embrace her, but she insisted they keep trying to have a child, even though they were both revolted by each other. She called it our duty to the party. So they had a problem getting pregnant, but she wouldn't give up even though she hated it so much. So he thinks again of the prostitute. On page 70, it says the sexual act successfully performed was rebellion. Desire was thought crime. So he finishes writing it. It didn't work like he thought it would. It wasn't the therapeutic experience he wanted. He still felt disgusted by himself and he regretted it deeply. Chapter 7. On page 69, it says, if there is hope, it lies in the proles. Like I said, the proles are the free people of Oceana. Not really free, but they are given liberties that the people in the party are not. So they can basically do whatever they want, but they're not taken care of by the government. They're very poor. They're looked down upon. The government just kind of leaves them alone, and they don't really have any rules, but they live in poverty. So Winston records the status of the proles and how ingsoc which is a shorthand for english socialism it's spelled i-n-g-s-o-c ingsoc so he talks about how ingsoc history says that the party saved the proles from oppressive capitalism so the proles consist of 85 percent of the population they're free to act do whatever they want but they've never even considered overthrowing the government it's just not something that they care about. But Winston believes that they are the only hope to overthrow the party because they're so large in number. Okay, so Winston is at his house. He pulls out an old children's history book and he reads a section about what London was like before the revolution. In the book, it says it was not the beautiful city that we know today. 
It talks about how everyone was starving and the children were forced to work. It talks about how capitalist men were wicked, fat, and ugly. It says, The capitalists owned everything in the world and everyone else was their slave. If anyone disobeyed them, they could throw him into prison or they could take his job away and starve him to death. He compares the capitalists to kings. Winston thinks about the world he lives in today in Oceana and how it is bare and dingy and doesn't resemble at all what the party shows on telescreens. The party's constantly showing how prosperous Oceana is. They put pictures of it all over the telescreens and no one knows that it's not real unless there are people like Winston. Because of course... None of it could be proved or disproved because the past was constantly being changed and rewritten. On page 77, it says, It might very well be that literally every word in the history books, even the things that one accepted without question, was pure fantasy. And there was no way of telling what was true and what wasn't. He's thinking about all of the government's corruptions, and he recalls a moment when he had definite proof of a fabricated lie. The short version is this. There's a man named Rutherford and two other men with him who were arrested and killed for working against the party, working for the Brotherhood, working for Emmanuel Goldstein. So Winston is at work one day. He's given his tasks, a bunch of pieces of paper, and in those pieces of paper, he found a crumpled up piece of an old magazine page from the Times that showed a party function that all the members of the inner party were at, and in the photo was Rutherford and the two other men. The date of the function, as shown on the picture in the Times, was the same date that these men had supposedly been in Eurasia doing whatever they were doing to defy the party. So Winston sees this and realizes that their confessions were lies. This invigorates him, reassures him that he's right, but he's obviously afraid. He drops the paper into the memory hole and it's lost forever. It says on page 82, the past not only changes, but changed continuously. The immediate advantages of falsifying the past were obvious, but the ultimate motive was mysterious. So this was the one time that Winston held undeniable proof that the party falsified information and he just threw it in the memory hole because he was afraid. He looks at a photo of Big Brother and thinks about how these people scare you and persuade you into believing anything they say. It says if the party would announce that two and two made five, you would have to believe it. On page 83 it says, and what was terrifying was not that they would kill you for thinking otherwise, but that they might be right. For after all, how do we know that two and two make four? or that the force of gravity works, or that the past is unchangeable. If both the past and the external world exist only in the mind, and if the mind itself is controllable, what then? So Winston becomes more and more sure that O'Brien is on his side and working for the Brotherhood, and he realizes that he's writing his diary for O'Brien, and he writes in his diary, Freedom is the freedom to say that two and two make four. If that is granted, all else follows. Chapter 8. Winston decides not to attend the community center one night, which will definitely be noted by the party. They know everything, and doing anything on your own was slightly dangerous. The new speak word for this is own life. Okay, so he's walking through the slums where the proles live, and a rocket pummels a nearby building and kills at least one person but all the proles seem very indifferent to this it doesn't really it doesn't really bother them he walks into a nasty bar in search of someone who might remember life before the revolution so he finds an old man buys him a beer and asks him a bunch of questions but he realizes that this old man's memories are incoherent they're jumbled So on page 93, it says, Within 20 years at most, Winston reflected, the huge and simple question, was life better before the revolution than it is now, would have ceased once and for all to be answerable. But in effect, it was unanswerable even now. 
So this man can't answer any of his questions. He's just basically senile. So Winston leaves and he finds himself standing outside the antique store that he had bought his journal from. And he goes in and buys something else. It's just an ornamental piece of coral that has been set in glass because it reminds him of the past. It's a useless item, probably like a paperweight or something from the past, and he likes it because it's useless and things like that aren't made anymore. The store owner, his name is Mr. Charrington, leads him to a private room behind the shop front, which is covered in things from the past and things from before the revolution, and Winston has the thought that he could probably pay this man to rent this space out to stay for a couple nights a week just to have some time by himself with no telescreen because there's no telescreen in this room. The store owner sings a song to him about the old churches in London which the song has been forgotten and he only remembers the first lines but Winston is really taken by the song. So he leaves the store and when he walks out he notices the dark-haired woman was following him. He sees her hiding behind a corner. He panics, thinks that he's about to be arrested, thinks for sure now that she's a member of the Thought Police. He manages to evade her. So he goes home and he thinks about O'Brien in his dream, telling him that they'll meet in the place where there is no darkness. And he decides it must have been the imagined future. The place with no darkness is the imagined future. It says, which one would never see, but one could mystically share in. Okay, now we are in part two, and this is chapter one. Winston is at work, and he is walking down the hall when he passes the dark-haired girl. And right when he passes her, she slips and falls, so he bends down to help her up. And as he helps her up, she slips a note in his hand. He goes back to his desk. He's obviously dying to read it. He thinks for sure it's like, haha, you've been caught by the thought police. So he slips the note into his other papers and continues about his day until he gets to the note. And when he opens it and reads it, it says, I love you. He looks at it for a split second and immediately drops it into the memory hole. Winston thinks about this. He has obviously mixed emotions. He hated her, thought that she was a member of the Thought Police, and now she's telling him that she loves him. And so he just sits there thinking about her and how much he wants her, and he agonizes over being unable to meet her and talk to her, and he eventually figures out that the easiest way for him to talk to her is in the cafeteria. If he can get there early when she's sitting alone at a table, he can join her before anyone else does. They can talk for maybe a minute before other people come. So he finally finds the opportunity after a couple of days, sees her alone in the cafeteria and goes to sit next to her, just asks where they can meet, when they can meet. She tells him to come meet him during this public procession about war criminals So he goes there, walks through the crowd, finds her, and they just sort of walk near each other, talking very quietly, and they coordinate a time to meet in the countryside. She gives him very elaborate directions, then they part. Okay, chapter two. Winston takes the train out to the country, follows this woman's very elaborate instructions perfectly, and finds her in a secluded spot in the countryside. They go here because it's away from people, away from telescreens, away from possibly hidden microphones. And after a little awkward exchange, they embrace. The woman tells him that her name is Julia, that she detests the party, and she suspected that Winston felt the same because she was observing him and she decided to pursue him. So they, they talk for a while, they have sex, they fall asleep, and when they wake up, Winston feels very happy that they defied the party and that he found someone else who has similar feelings as he does against the party. And it says that their intimacy was a political act. Chapter 3. 
So the next few months consist of Winston and Julia finding various ways to disguise themselves so that they can see each other. They go to a deserted tower. They often meet in crowds, walk down secluded alleys. A lot of the time, they're not able to touch or anything, but they at least can be near each other and speak. Winston realizes that Julia is very experienced in this, or must be, must have done it several times before, and he likes this about her. He likes that she's not innocent. He likes that she likes being you know, intimate with a man. Julia is different than Winston in that she doesn't care to defy the party and like overthrow them or anything like that. She just really likes breaking the rules. So it says on page 131, he wondered vaguely how many others like her there might be in the younger generation. People who had grown up in the world of the revolution, knowing nothing else, accepting the party as something unalterable, like the sky, not rebelling against its authority, but simply evading it as a rabbit dodges a dog. So she doesn't believe in the brotherhood. She's never heard of the brotherhood of any defying group of people over the party. She doesn't care about overthrowing the party. She just likes to break the rules. And she highlights how the party has repurposed sex and the traditional family solely for the use of the government. She talks about how there's no more love or natural feelings associated with relationships. And she thinks that the reason the party doesn't want sex and intimacy is because it uses up energy and makes people happy. And if you're happy inside yourself, why should you get excited about Big Brother and Two Minutes Hate and other things like that? Winston thinks that he and Julia are already dead, and Julia sees them as alive. Winston tells her about a day when he and his wife were on a hike. They got lost from the group. No one else was around, and he had a brief thought to push her off the cliff but he didn't. And Julia says, well, you should have. So kind of an interesting dynamic between the two of them. Chapter four. Winston is incredibly nervous about meeting with Julia this time because he has done what he wanted. He rented that room from Mr. Charrington, the antique shop owner, and Julia is coming to meet him there. He pays Mr. Charrington to let him use the room to keep quiet about it. It's been a long time since Julia and Winston were able to meet in private. And during this time, Winston thinks about hate week. So hate week is like shark week. (laughs) Not really, but it's basically a week long celebration type thing of you know, defeating Emmanuel Goldstein, praising the party, blah, blah, blah. Work hours have been increased in preparation for hate week, which is a month from now. Winston and Julia are very busy, they, so they couldn't meet for a long time. So he's in the room, he's nervous, and Julia comes. She brings in some things that she has smuggled from the inner party, which consists of real sugar, white bread, jam, and real coffee. And she even puts on makeup, which is something that party members never do. So they spend the night together. They wake up. Winston <laughs> Winston sees a rat, has a horrible reaction to it. He hates rats. He freaks out and Julia just kind of shoves it away. Okay, chapter five. Winston at work doesn't see his friend Syme for a few days and he thinks he must have been vaporized. And this is confirmed later. It says on 151, Syme has ceased to exist. He had never existed. And Winston knew this would happen because, like he said in the beginning, Syme was too smart. As hate week draws near, the weather is incredibly hot. Public places are awful to be in. Everyone is working overtime on special assignments to ensure hate week is a success. And in correlation with Hate Week's arrival, there's deadlier bombings than normal, which incites intense patriotism, even from the proles. So even during all of this, Winston and Julia are able to meet in Mr. Charrington's room. Many of the impulses 
Winston has to rebel against the party have sort of subsided when he starts being able to use Mr. Charrington's spare room. It says on 153, he stopped drinking gin all the time, his coughing fits stopped, and it says the process of life had ceased to be intolerable. Okay, while they're in their room, they often daydream about escaping the party and being together, but their plans are just wistful. They never would even follow through with them. They even talk about suicide as defiance to the party, but they never had any intention of following through on any of these plans. They mention how they may be able to join the Brotherhood. Winston insists that it's real, and he mentions how he feels a connection to O'Brien, that he thinks that they both dislike the party. Julia thinks that everyone dislikes the party and everyone would rebel if they knew they could do it safely. She's incredibly suspicious that Goldstein even exists. She is of the opinion that the war isn't even happening, that even the bombings are from their own party and not other nations, and they're just all constructs to keep people in fear. And that's, I mean, I think that's pretty smart, and it's probably true. It says on 153, she only questioned the teachings of the party when they in some way touched upon her own life. Often she was ready to accept the official mythology simply because the difference between truth and falsehood did not seem important to her. Winston tells her about the Rutherford thing and how he figured out that the party was lying, and even after that, she's still indifferent. She says, I know, of course, that the past is falsified, but it would never be possible for me to prove it. And Winston often tries to show how destructive party doctrines are, like Ingsoc and Doublethink, but Julia remains uninterested, focused solely on individual rather than ideological rebellion. She also doesn't remember that four years ago, Oceania was at war with East Asia, not Eurasia, and this shocks him. It says on 158, do you realize that the past, starting from yesterday, has actually been abolished? Every record has been destroyed or falsified. Every book has been rewritten. Every picture has been repainted. Every statue and street and building has been renamed. Every date has been altered. And that process is continuing day by day, minute by minute. History has stopped. Nothing exists except an endless present in which the party is always right. Winston realizes that if Julia and other people like her can accept to do what the party asks them to do, even if they don't agree with it, they obviously don't see the big picture effects of what they're doing. And this is why no one will ever overthrow the party. Okay, guys, that is the end of this episode. In the next episode, we will cover chapters six through the rest of the book and go over themes. So make sure you go and listen to that one when it comes out. Also, if you didn't already, go give me a review. It really helps me out. But thank you for listening and look out for the next episode of 1984.